Turn in the Bible, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 10 through 14 today. Staying in this vein of purpose and meaning in life and um, finishing up next week on how it is we are a voice in one another's life. Um, It's a a subject that's very near and dear to me. Um, My personal walk was profoundly affected early on by having the opportunity to minister to other people and and my life is not the same since. And, And I'm of the belief that each and every one of us is a priest and a minister of the Lord and we each have a ministry, we each have gifts, we each have opportunities and God has equipped us and positioned us in different areas of life and given us a God-given sphere of influence to build the kingdom of God as a priest and a minister. Um, when I first came to Christ, I was, my life was a horrendous mess. And uh, I didn't know anything about going to church. I just showed up in the most desperate and dire straits I'd ever been in. I'd go up in the balcony and I'd just sit there by myself and I didn't know a soul. And they would preach the word and they would worship. And I would cry. I would wail. I would weep. I didn't know what I was experiencing. I didn't know if I was happy. I didn't know if I was sad. I didn't know what, all I knew is I went there, I sat there, I cried and I went home. And I did that often. Something was coming out of me. I don't know what it was, but it was the presence of God that was just calling me and facilitating just like these deep cleansing times of sitting in the presence of God and weeping. (laughs) And I'd listen to what few would argue with with some of the greatest ministers in the country at the time, giants of the faith, and um, I would listen to him preach, and one day he led me to Christ on a Sunday night. And I think the next week I was in the back of the sanctuary at one of those Sunday night services, and the Lord audibly spoke to me and told me I'd, I'd be a pastor in that church. And in my mind, the difference between, the, the measurement and distance between the pulpit and where I sat must have been in my own mind, thousands of miles. I didn't, I didn't have any background. I didn't have any education. I hadn't even finished my undergraduate degree. I didn't even own a Bible when I first started going there. I had no understanding of anything. Uh, I spent more time blaspheming the Lord than I did studying his word. And if it wasn't for, my, for uh, others in my life and my, my later-to-be wife encouraging me to be a Bible teacher, I don't know, I just don't know. I volunteered in the youth group. Anyway, the crying stopped, and all of a sudden, I don't even know what happened. I was on staff, and I was the least equipped person on staff to be a youth, I was a youth pastor, I had no experience. I'd never even been to a youth group before. What did I know about it? Um, So I just volunteered, and then all of a sudden they hired me. And I was stunned. I go, man, you must be desperate. So I sat down with the pastor and he had to hire me. In fact, he said, 
Uh, he had so many parents telling him to hire me that he said it would be ministerial suicide if I didn't hire you. And he thought I was this really successful businessman, which I wasn't. But I didn't tell him I wasn't. He goes, you probably make a lot of money and you're probably successful in the business community. He goes, how much, how much do you need to be a... He, I knew he had to hire me. He was in a very bad negotiating place. And I said, you know, this is in the 1990s. I said, you know, I just picked a number. It was like 10 more than I was making at the time. I said, like, close to $50,000. And he jumped. He's like, oh my gosh, we just don't pay that for a youth minister. And I just sat there, didn't say a word. And it got awkward because I knew he had to hire me. <laughs> so what was I gonna do? I just sat there. I waited for him to come up, you see. And he goes, uh, well, can you do anything else? <laughs> I, felt, I felt like telling him I can't even do youth ministry. <laughs> if you only knew. All I knew is he had to hire me and the Lord told me I was gonna work there. So he was in a real bad situation. And he goes, can you do like Christian, edu Christian education? I go, yeah. <laughs> Kidding? I'm a Christian and I know what education is. <laughs> he goes, okay, if you can do Christian education, then we can justify the salary. I said, okay. He goes, what do you want? I said, I don't want, I, there's two things I don't want. Let me tell you what they are. I don't want a job. I want a calling. And I don't want you as a boss. I want you as a pastor. And I want you to help me be a minister. And 13 years later, I was his right-hand man, assistant pastor. And I was charged with overseeing 14 other pastors. And I'd had the privilege of having jobs all throughout this mega church and traveled all around the world. It was really humorous, really was. And I learned so much about ministry there. But what happened is something got planted in me that can't be uprooted, it is there, and I can't run from it, deny it, or anything. And what is that? That the distance between you and the ministry God has for you is really not that far apart. When I look at the fivefold ministry of Ephesians chapter four, it says, the whole role of a pastor, as I look at it, is to prepare God's people for works of service. If a church has centralized someone in the church who's supposedly supposed to do all the ministry, it's so backwards, it's not funny. You're the priesthood. You're supposed to be doing the work and I'm supposed to be encouraging you and equipping you. So your purpose and meaning in life in part has, has to do with being that priest and minister. You can't get away from it. It's just basically the Bible. And it's, it's in that spirit I wanna share some things with you today. Uh, just to get us in the right frame of mind, let's just listen to this. There's a relationship which makes life complete. Without that relationship, there's a void, a vacuum in life. Many people, even those who are well-known, can test to that void. For example, H.G. Wells, famous historian and philosopher, said at age 61, I have no peace. All life is at the end of the tether. 
The poet Byron said, my days are in yellow leaf, the flowers and fruits of life are gone and worn on the canker and the grief of mine is mine alone. The literary genius, genius Thoreau said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Ralph Barton, one of the top cartoonists of the nations, left this note pinned to his pillow before taking his own life. I've had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours a day. Some of the most artistic and gifted men and known in their circles of discipline were basically miserable. How is it that we are better defined and can express our purpose and meaning in life for each of us going forward? Because the absence of purpose and meaning in life typically means the presence of things we don't want. The void that is actually created by not having specific goals, short and long-term, and purpose and meaning and ministry in life we all deal with. We come to the church asking for help to overcome these things, and, and usually prayer is the antidote and, and, and learning the word and all of these things. But in many respects, with all due respect, some of the things we deal with in life exist because they have been not been pushed out of the way by a higher calling. They, they exist because of the evidence of a lack of purpose and meaning. If we had a deeper purpose and meaning that was clarified with specificity and intentionality, some of the things we deal with in life emotionally, relationally, occupationally would not exist. There would not be room for them to exist. So how do each of us in our own God-given sphere of influence heighten our understanding of our purpose and meaning and execute and move towards that for the glory of God? Paul says, in early on in chapter three of Philippians, hey, I, I, I've been around the block a few times. He says, I, I know how it works. And, and I've drawn some final life conclusions. There's a lot of things in life, quite frankly, that are nothing more than excrement. And I'm gonna boil it all down to this one statement right now. This is truly what it's all about. And he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, come him like him in death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He finally learned after so many seminars and classes and lectures and reading and, and Judaism and history and ceremonialism, he finally learned, I just want to know Christ. And then he says in verse 12 this, not that I've really obta already obtained this. I mean, it's a process, he says, or I've already arrived at my goal. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God has prepared 
works for each of us to do in advance. He saved us, but also saved us with a purpose in mind for us. The purpose doesn't save us. The purpose is a byproduct of being saved. It's an expression of that. It's the outworking of the spirit that's already in us that's natural for him through us to minister to other people. He says, I have my goal. Not that I've already attained this or that I've already arrived at my goal. What does that tell you? Each and every one of us should have in some way, shape or form a goal that is personal to us. We're not supposed to have one another's goals. My goal is not your goal. Your goal is not my goal. You have a specific personalized goal that God has in mind for you in the type of ministry that you carry out. Your ministry is not less than another and it's not greater than another. It's just personal. What is your personal way of bringing glory to God as a minister? Is a fair question. He says, it's my goal. He says, but I press on. In other words, I make this pretty stinking important and I'm going to press through things that get in the way. I'm going to ignore distractions. I'm going to put aside things that are of no consequence. I'm gonna put the superfluous aside, the petty aside, the, the, the stupid immature stuff beside. I'm not gonna, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna have integrity. I'm not gonna get caught up in the base worldliness of, of what I see happening in the world and the people that exemplify absolute stupidity. I'm just basically gonna press on through all of that I'm gonna put it aside. I'm not gonna get distracted by it. I'm not gonna get caught up in gossip or talking behind people's backs or putting people down or being divisive. I'm gonna make every effort, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace and I'm going to press through all that nonsense. I'm not gonna get caught up in it because I have a goal and that goal is pretty important and I'm gonna take hold of it. I'm gonna hold on to it, I'm gonna seize it, I'm gonna embrace it, I'm gonna bear hug it, I'm gonna keep it from getting away from me, I'm gonna keep other people from taking it from me, I'm focused. For that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Oh. Oh, thank God these, are in the, this, these words are in the Bible. There are some of us who live in the present moment and we move forward. There are those of us who live in the past and go nowhere. There's, there's things we have to do with the past. We have to reconcile ourselves to the past. We have to forgive those who have hurt us in the past. But the past does not have the luxury of preoccupying us for the rest of our life. It's to be dealt with, it's to be severed, it's to be understood, it's not to define us, it is to, be, to, to reconcile ourselves to the extent that we need to, to forgive where we need to forgive, to let go where we need to let go, but it does not create our identity, it does not keep us from our present moment, and it doesn't keep us from our future in Christ. Forget about it. This is the thing. So many people in life are so good at forgetting about things. Start with a dental cleaning 
and move up from there. We forget about everything in life. At least I do. But the one thing we have to forget that we have the hardest time forgetting is the past. The past has shaped us. It has molded us. Good things in our past have formed us, spiritually formed us, physically nurtured us. The love that we got from our parents and from our families, they, they justify who we are today. In our past, we were saved. We came to Christ. All of these great things happened in our past. Yes, things were withheld from us, people abandoned us, people hurt us, whatever. We made mistakes back there, we made bad decisions. If we had to do it all over again, we'd probably tweak this and that or overhaul the whole thing. But whatever the case, Paul says, if you really wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and you really wanna press on toward the goal, for my goal, I have to drop the past. Here's a guy who gets to drop the persecution of Christians, the imprisonment of Christians, the mocking of Christians, the locking up of Christians. He gets to forget all that. And his, all his learnedness and all that stuff. And at the end of the day, he has to understand, who am I in Christ right now? And what is my goal? And to what do I press on toward the goal to win the prize? That's it. Your past cannot be your Lord. Where are you today has something to do with your past, but it's not forever. It's not eternal. Wounded people wound people often. And if our past wounded us, we need to deal with it. And that's why we have freedom in Christ. All of those things, all those resources we had, we gave you. Then he says in verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Mature for this particular church at this particular time with this particular pastor and teacher and preacher. I can assure you more often than not, God is calling you to maturity. This is not a kindergarten church. You've been around the block a few times, you know your doctrine, you know your word. There's a lot you know, a lot you've experienced. But if anything God's doing in most of the body of believers here is calling you to maturity, to the lordship of Christ and to mentoring and discipling other people. Really, that's really where most of you are. And it would be an injustice. It would be an injustice for me to, to go back and firm up your past constantly at the expense of this season of your life, where you are right now, and what it is you had to offer other people. Most of you are mature. Paul says the maturity comes from pressing on, from having a goal, most of you right now would do well to have a short long-term goal and really define your purpose and meaning in life because in this season of your life, you have more to give than you've ever had before. And I mean that, I mean wisdom, I mean compassion, I mean insight. All you, what you lack is the opportunity and the form and the context in which to minister to other people. That's your biggest problem. Not whether you have the goods or not, whether you have the context to do it. 
Paul realized that. That's maturity, he said. God will make that clear to you. I just learned this profound lesson in my life. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know it. You know what I mean? I realized that in some particular relationships in my life, I'm not a mediator. It's not my role to be a mediator between certain people in my life and God. So finally, I just said, hey, go, go to talk to him on your own. Go talk to him directly. Yell at him. <laughs> Speak to him. Inquire of him. You, you don't need a mediator. Christ is the mediator. Go talk to God on your own. And the result was profoundly successful, far more than me getting in the way. Paul says this right here. He doesn't say, and get with someone in the church so they'll help you figure it out. No, he says, God will make that clear to you. God is ready for some of the toughest questions that you can muster. To him, they're a day at the beach. Some of the toughest questions you need to ask him, ask him directly and wait on an answer. Those that wait upon the Lord, they'll mount up with wings and seas. Ask him and wait. Don't let go of him. Almost respectfully demand an answer, really. Ask of him anything in your life you don't understand. And it's his responsibility to, to answer the question. That's what the Holy Spirit's in you for, in part. John W. Gardner, founding chairman of Common Cause, said it's a rare and high privilege to help people understand the difference they can make, not only in their own lives, but also in the lives of others, simply by giving of themselves. Gardner tells of a cheerful old man who asked the same question of just about every new acquaintance he fell into conversation with. Here's his question. What have you done that you believe in and you are proud of? He never asked conventional questions like, what do you do for a living? It was always, what have you done that you believe in and are proud of? It was an unsettling question for people who had built their self-esteem on their wealth and their family name or their exalted job title. Now that the old man was a fierce interrogator, he was delighted by a woman who answered, I'm doing a good job raising three children and by, a, and, and by a cabinet maker who said, I believe in good workmanship and practice it. And by a woman who said, I started a bookstore and it's the best bookstore for miles around. I don't really care how they answer, said the old man. I just want to put the thought into their minds. They should live their lives in such a way that they can have a good answer. Not a good answer for me, but for themselves. That's what's important. So much of life, we only replicate out of habit. And we do it out of the, the highest degree of superficiality known to man. Hey, what do you do for a living? Incredibly superficial. Get the same answer to the question, but get a deeper meaning to it by rephrasing the question. If we could look at our encounters in life and our relationships and our friendships where we knew how to ask questions that solicited more than a yes or no or a grunt or your common, yeah, I'm fine, it's amazing how we would see the human heart open to us and learn things about people that really matter to them. That has purpose and meaning. 
superficial, on-the-surface questions lead us nowhere into a deeper relationship with people. And we do the same with God. I listen to people pray and I go, there is absolutely zero to no depth to that prayer. It is no more penetrating, no more challenging, no more in-depth than the surface of a granite countertop. The actual act of praying satisfies more Christians than what is actually prayed. Get, get, get a prayer out that has something more penetrating and insightful and it makes you more inquisitive and curious of the Lord and, and sees him more as a mystery where you need answers and your, your relationship's gonna begin to grow. Our relationships with the Lord are only as in-depth as the depth of our questions and our interaction with him the same way it is in your marriage or mine. What is it that needs to be taken out of my life that would open me up to a full new understanding of you? What is it that's keeping me from experiencing more of you and less of me? What is it in me that needs to die? Reveal that to me. You start asking questions like that, the depth of your relationship with him is going to skyrocket. So is your effectiveness in ministering to other people. What you'll testify to will be at a level far deeper than most, most people have just made this relationship with God common. Just like the name God is common. You are called to uncommonness. Uncommonness. You have a high calling of uncommonness, uniqueness, specificity. Your, your walk with Christ is personalized. It's branded. He, I mean, he was so interested in your name, he knew it before you were born. He's interested in something beneath the surface. Is your conversation with him in depth or superficial? Put it this way, we are not actually accessing the power of God when our interaction with him necessitates little to no effort on his part and has little to no depth. We have an infinite God and we're, we're acting as though he's finite, penetrating, deep, inquisitive, thought-provoking prayers that free you up that embolden you, that fill you with the spirit, that, that set you apart from other people who truth. I wanna know how I get more compassion flowing through my veins where I'm more burdened for a lost person than I am right now. That is depth. That's depth. What is it? that needs to activate the power of this river of life within me. How do we get that flowing at a greater level, more influential, where it quenches the thirst of more people? That's what I wanna know. What is it? What is it I don't know? What is it I don't even know to pray? To reveal to me what it is I need to say. I sat down with a minister one time at Houston's restaurant at Paces Ferry in Atlanta, Dr. Mark Rutland. He was a hero of mine. And I was hosting him for a marriage conference because I was a new guy and that's what they made me do, host people. 
And uh, I said to my assistant, I was a youth minister, I said, uh, hey, could you get Dr. Rutland's number? I'd like to invite him out to dinner with my wife and his wife. She laughed. She laughed. She goes, you think he's gonna go out to dinner with you and Angie? I go, yeah, why not? She goes, I don't know, that guy's pretty up there, you know? I said, just, just give me the number. So I called him, I said, um, yeah, we're hosting you coming in. Uh, we'd love to have dinner with you. Could you meet us at Houston's? My wife, Angie, and I, I'd love to get to know you and your wife, Allison. He goes, absolutely. After he called back and left a message, he goes, this is Dr. Mark Rutland, R-U-T-L-A-N-D. Like I didn't know who he was. So I get to dinner with him and he can see. I mean, it's not hard to figure out. I am green. <laughs> I'm like really green. And he goes, all right, son, what is it? I said, well, to be honest with you, I need you to tell me what I need to be asking you. <laughs> His wife laughed. And she gave him one of these. She goes, you remember when you were there? And he told me. He told me exactly what I needed to know exactly when I needed to know it. And God's that way sometimes. The prayer is, show me how, the disciples had it figured out, teach us how to pray. Show me what I need to be praying beyond what I am. Because I need deeper, deeper purpose and meaning. If you have deeper purpose and meaning, you have deeper passion for something, you don't need self-discipline. I figured this out a long time ago. Self-discipline's overrated. I don't really have it, nor am I trying to acquire it. I just involve myself in things I really like. You guys who like to, you know what you're passionate about? Your short game, your 60 degree wedge. Does someone have to push you out the door to go over to the driving range and hit out of the sand trap? No, they're trying to get you to come back because you're never home. Why? Because you have a passion for a short game. You don't need self-discipline. If you have to self-discipline yourself in your Christian walk, you lack passion. Or you've been in a church that lacks passion. That's the issue. So we come now to the end of one's life. A person who has had purpose and meaning can put it into action. I'm gonna hold two or three workshops on this very subject coming up at this spring. What is and how do you write your eulogy? Right, a eulogy is an encapsulation of one's life. It's a summary of what that person was all about. It's not actually your actual eulogy I'm asking you to write, but it, but it is one that will change over time as you change and your circumstances change. But the eulogy is something you read on a daily basis. And what that eulogy will do is refresh your mind and your heart to what you're all about mostly. What are your number one goals? Probably some, for some of you, it's gonna have to do with family or raising your children. Others of you are in a different place right now, but family's gonna be up there. Um, if you can take a short eulogy, and it has to be short because you don't want to read your own thing every day that's three pages long. What am I all about? 
What am I seeking for someone to say about my life when I'm no longer living on this earth? How would I frame and prioritize what I want my life to be about? What is my goal? What is my goal? What is it that I'm pressing on? What am I holding on to? What am I keeping and protecting from every other distraction? What is it? There's four qualities about a eulogy I want to give you. And then for those of you who want to pursue it later, we'll write them together. The first one is the eulogy works as a filter. Meaning what? The Bible is a filter. You may not realize this, but the Bible is a filter. When you read it and then you go out into the world and you hear things or you're taught things, it all has to filter through that scripture. And what you have that makes its way through the scripture is good. It's a filter. It filters out, it filters out false teaching, false expectations, everything else. It's a net. Everything that stays in the net is good. Everything that falls out of the net is bad. If you have a eulogy that's like a filter and you read that every day, so this is what I'm about, this is what the Lord's having me to pursue right here, then everything that's not there is filtered out. You don't have any need for it. You know what to say no to immediately when you actually know what your purpose and meaning are. When you know the scripture, you hear something on television or somebody teach it or something, you go, that doesn't sound too good. There's something off about that. It doesn't meet the criteria of making it through the filter. That's why you gotta know the word. And when you review that daily, you're reminded of what is important here. Because if, you're, if your marriage is at the top of that list, apart from the Lord, you need to know that. You need to be reminded of that. We need to refresh that on a daily basis. There's a story involving Yogi Berra, the well-known catcher for the New York Yankees, and Hank Aaron, who at the time was the chief power hitter for the Milwaukee Braves. The teams were playing in the World Series, and as usual, Yogi was keeping up his ceaseless chatter, intended to pep up his teammates on one hand and distract the Milwaukee batters on the other. As Aaron came to the plate, Yogi tried to distract him by saying, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. Aaron didn't say anything, but when the next pitch came, he hit it into left field bleachers. After rounding the bases and tagging up at home plate, Aaron looked at Yogi Berra and said, I didn't come up here to read. Here's a guy who knew what his purpose and meaning was and what was a distraction. And Yogi Berra didn't meet the filter, not the filter test. So the first thing about your eulogy is it's, it acts as a filter. The second thing is it defines your community. Uh, we just had a recovery course start uh, this week. You know, much of recovery from addiction, a lot of it, has to do with creating, fostering, and nurturing a new community. A trusting community that's confidential, a community that understands you, can empathize with you, can hold you accountable, can give you opportunities to serve others, and can help, help you in this process of getting free from what you're entangled with. Community is huge in the world of recovery. Well, community is huge in life. Your eulogy should be a filter, but it should also define 
What community is most important to you? For, for many of us, it's gonna be family. It's gonna be the, uh, your church family, the friendships in your neighborhood, the coworkers. There are different opportunities for community in your life that should probably be part of your purpose and meaning in life as well. Many of you go to country clubs and it's amazing to me in this particular culture that we live in up here on this plateau, how important a country club is in terms of influencing other people. Do you know that if you didn't live here and you, and you came up here as a stranger, as a believer, and someone said, yeah, we have country clubs up here. Oh, okay, what a great opportunity to witness to people, I would think. Oh no, you have no idea. Not only are there great places to witness to people and bring them to church, they have Bible studies there. What? Yeah, we have Bible studies in our country clubs. Oh, and the people in the country clubs come to church. Oh, and they bring people to church. Oh, and they have international students that work there at the country club, and they come to church, and they get baptized, and they get saved, and they come for counseling, and they get married. That's a vibrant community. Some of you are incredible at leveraging the power of God in that particular community. You really are. It's amazing. but we have these communities in our life and part of your eulogy should identify those communities in which you're, a, you're an influencer, you're a factor. Uh, the place where you do what you do best, where you appreciate some communities, you appreciate art or food or hospitality. Uh, some of you are into wine tasting or whatever. It affords you influence in your life with other people and you have a legacy impact. The third thing about a eulogy is it ought to be challenging. Doable and realistic, but not without the Lord's intervention. It needs to be just challenging enough that you can't do it on your own. It betters your world and it deals with challenges. Don't run from challenges. Challenges is where the transformation comes. Challenges and difficulties and ministering to people in these situations, that's where the growth comes. Now you're talking God's language. Growth, sanctification, Maturity, challenges, overcoming. And, and that's what leads to the last thing. When you write your eulogy, it should be transformative. You should be different for the things you chose to highlight in your life. What you're about and what you engage in ought to be transformative to who you are. It ought to change your priorities, your emotions, what you think. It ought to change the way that you actually are perceived by other people because the old man, the old woman's dying and the new man, the new woman is coming forward. That's what happens when you challenge and you live uh, with the challenges that are, that are of life and not run from them. When someone dies, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how, to, I, I can only try to tell you about this. When someone dies and there's a pretty good chance you're gonna do the funeral, Most people are going, oh, that's gonna be easy, or what a bummer, that's gonna be hard. How do you encapsulate a person's life? Or how do you capture the essence of what they contributed to this world if you don't know them? Now, you don't have to know much about a person to know what they're truly all about when you know what they've been through and how they went through it and who they went through it with 
and how they helped other people. You get the essence of what their ministry was and, and the unique specialness of who that person is. And, and others will eulogize them and, and, and usually me or somebody else is the person who kind of puts their life next to the scripture and makes sense of it without deifying them. But a eulogy is something we don't think about. I ask you this question. What is your life truly all about? And of that, how much of that is legacy-oriented? In other words, it's going to continue on in your absence through your children, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren. How much of it is legacy-oriented? How much of it is kingdom-oriented? How much of it is lasting? And how much of it is temporal? There is no better funeral, in my, in my opinion, than that of a good man or a good woman. And most good men and good women, solid, faithful servants of God, those people, their purpose and meaning was to serve, was to help, was to support, defend, and make known the cause of Christ. They did it with simplicity, earnestness, compassion. They never sought to be great. They sought to be all that God had called them to be. And if it was great, fine. And if it was good, fine. They were earnest and authentic in their pursuits of God. They were authentic in their worship. What, what more do you want? And what more could the Lord want to say, well done, now good and faithful servant? You are a priest and you're a minister of the Lord. You have a set-apartness to you. You're consecrated. You're gifted. And you have a God-given sphere of influence. You already have it, whether you're aware of it or not. But God can broaden that. And the width of your influence is proportional to the depth of your walk. The more intimate you are with the Lord, the more influence you're going to have in other people's lives. I've known this to be true for the last two decades. I've seen it happen in people's life. The nearer you are to him, the more impact you'll have among others. The less near to him you are, the less impact you'll have to others. Because what he's calling you to is uncommon. Uncommon Christians deal with uncommon situations with poise and maturity and grace. They're not impulsive. They don't overreact. They're wise. They're thoughtful. They seek wise counsel in the safety of a multitude of counselors. They understand what this is all about. God is calling you to maturity. You're a living epistle read of all men.
God wants to use you and has prepared works in advance for you to do, fresh and anew. You're not to live in the past, to live in the moment, reconciled to whatever happened back then, grateful for whatever happened back then, but positioned now to do something lasting and eternal for the glory of God. Despite our challenges and our ailments and our sicknesses, in fact, he may use our challenges, ailments and sicknesses to that end. This again necessitates maturity. The thought, the very thought is ridiculous. But the very thought that we would do greater works than Christ can only be a reality by the Christ that's in you, the hope of glory. If Christ is working through billions of people, the billions of people will do far greater works than he. If Christ isn't working through billions of people, he will have reached the pinnacle of works while he was here on earth. But the Spirit of God is in us, resident, tabernacling, to be accessed and used for the glory of God in the lives of other people. And for that reason, we'll do greater works than he. I can think of no greater wasted resource that a human could waste, more even more so than time, is to have resident within you the spirit of the living God and not call upon him to minister through you to other people as a tragedy. That, that, that's, that's, whole, that's terrible. And that's where the fun is. That's where the joy of Christianity is. You are about to ingest the broken body of Christ and the blood of the Lamb. If you didn't focus on anything else today other than the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of mankind, remember that we are ingesting we're taking, remembering him, taking him in fresh and anew to give him away. Just think of it that simple. And your purpose and meaning in life will just exponentially increase. The challenges that we face to get in the way of that will exponentially decrease. We don't pray ourselves to deliverance all the time. We, we actually do what he told us to do and there remains little to no room for those things in our life anymore. He crowds them out. So as the, as the communicants would come forward, we're gonna pray over our Lord's table today. May the word of God dwell in us richly. 
as we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. May our love abound more and more in depth of insight. Keep us mindful, Lord, of roteness in our friendship with you, repetitiveness, superficiality, untapped potential. Help us to mine the riches of your grace and your love and your mercy. Take us to new levels, revelatory levels of understanding of your, your power and your might and your love. That we may, Lord, provide fresh bread to those who are perishing, void, empty, hopeless. In Jesus' name, we receive the broken body of your son, mindful of our brokenness today. We receive the blood of the lamb taketh away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Examine thyself as you come to the two people nearest your area of the sanctuary. Come humbly, come worshipful.